Good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. Great to see you. Um, what I want to do is we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 and just really to get us ready. So let's go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord to guide our time. God, I come to you right now and I am grateful to be able to, in just a few short minutes, open up the book of Nehemiah. What great lessons that we're going to learn this morning. I pray that uh, you would uh, guide us and lead us and your spirit would speak to us. We simply don't get up here to learn about really ourselves. We want to learn about you. And Lord, that will be the guide for us this morning. We want to learn lessons about who you are, what we can be, and, and how we can live for you. Uh, that's why we gather in this place. We know that you are good to us. We know that you are so generous. And we pause and we just want to ask your blessing upon our kids in the kids' ministry this morning. I want to ask your blessing upon us. We have a lot of family members this weekend from our church that are traveling. We pray that you would keep them safe and pray that they would have a great time wherever they are. So Lord, use us this morning to uh, help, and help us to encounter you. Let your spirit guide us in Jesus' name, amen. We're in the season of commencement addresses. One that stuck out to me, probably stuck out to you, was Morehouse College last weekend where Robert F. Smith stood in front of the 400 graduates at Morehouse College and told him that his family, he's a billionaire, that his family was creating a grant to retire all of their debt. All of their student loan debt. Every single one of them. He said that for several generations that he and his family, were, uh, that many people in his family have graduated from Morehouse College. And so he wanted to make sure that 2019 had an opportunity to really focus on their dreams and focus on where they were going rather than paying off their debt, whether it was 20000 or 90000 or anything in between or over. And so he created a grant. It's going to cost $40 million for that to take place. And that was his gift to the graduates of Morehouse College. You can look at that. You can sit there. You can say that right there is an incredibly generous move. And that is a true statement. But what I want us to be captivated by in this text is to realize the generosity of God through Nehemiah in our, in our text uh, this morning, in Nehemiah chapter 5. Last week, what we've been learning is we learned in chapter 4 that there were all kinds of discouragement that's coming to the people of God that were doing the mission of God. We talked about discouragement darts are coming. We said we have to fend them off and we have to remember the final score. The final score basically declares that Jesus wins. We're not wanting that to happen. We know it's going to happen. It's a guarantee. We've read the scripture. We know it's taking place. Jesus is going to come back. He will be victorious. That's the final. That's what the scoreboard says. So we're operating with that in mind. We're living with that in mind. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Nehemiah, you have a lot of discouragement. In chapter 4, the discouragement comes from those on the outside. You and I must recognize that there will be things that will come against us when we're doing things for God. There will be naysayers, there will be doubters, there will be antagonists, there will be people who will try to get us distracted and get us off task of doing what God wants us to do and who God wants us to be. Coming from the outside should not surprise us because Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. That shouldn't surprise us. But this morning where the, the, the opposition comes from or the problem that arises is it's inside the body. 
It's not folks on the outside that are causing the problem. It's folks on the inside that are causing the problem. And Nehemiah comes, he realizes this, and he wants to address this. And that's where we sort of pick it up in here. We must always remember what God is doing because we are so easy to forget. We must remember his generosity. We must remember um, his mission. And we have a tendency to forget. And so Nehemiah comes back to the people of God and saying, listen, you have forgotten what is most important. And I want to help bring you back into the fold. What's going on in chapter 5? Just a couple of um, uh, background statements for you right now. We know the will of God. We know the will of God is to be accomplished. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that Satan will be defeated. And as a spoiler, we know the wall will be built. Okay? So if you haven't read the book of Nehemiah, I'm just telling you right now, the wall is going to be built. But the question remains, is how are we, the people of God, going to remain faithful doing the work of God? How are we going to remain faithful? How are we, as Hebrews says, going to spur each other up to love and good deeds? How are we going to look at the generosity of King Jesus and allow that to impact the way that we function among each other? How are we going to do that? All of these are seen in the book of Nehemiah because we look at the church that's coming together. And when you come together and you do life together, listen, sometimes um, we get on each other's nerves <laughs> like a true family. And so what, what's going on in, the, in, in chapter 5? Well, here's what's happening. Israel is not liked by many people. And when a, when a country is not liked by many people, they don't trade with you. They don't give you things. They keep you ostracized and out. That's what happens in culture. You could say the issues that are going on with the Israelites is there was hunger, debt, and high taxes. Lots changed, right? So here's what's happening right now. The supply for things is really high. The demand is really high. The supply is really low. Why is that taking place? Because we have farmers that are, farm that are farmers, but they're not farming. They're building the wall. So they're building, not, do, not planting crops so that they can eat. They're building the wall and they're doing the work of the Lord. And so you have wealthy Jews that have come back in and you have those that have a little bit less. And we'll see the conflict as we jump into chapter 5. So how do we together, how are we going to live generously for the glory of God until he returns? Let's take a look at Nehemiah 5. We'll go through this and we've got two points there at the end. Let's go with verse 1. And see what's happening. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1. Here it is. Now there arose a great outcry of the people of their wives and of their wives. Who is it against? Against the Jewish brothers. So we have a family conflict What's going on. We have a problem. There is an outcry. Who is it against? It's the, it's the people of God that are having a problem with the people of God. It's inside the house. Okay. Now let's go on to really Deuteronomy chapter 23, 19 through 20. I'm going to read this for you because it'll help you understand the problem a little bit better. Okay, here's the reason for their outcry. Here's what it says. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So here's what's going on. 
The people are being charged interest for doing the work of God. You have the wealthy Jews that are taxing or, or creating mortgages and, 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 and creating this, this money system where they're not able to pay their debts. So verse 2, here's what happens. For there were those, a couple of people that, we ju- that jump out, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Verse 3, there were those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Verse 4, another group. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are, are as their children. What is he saying? We're family. Then he says, yet we what we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So we've got several people that are represented here. Verse 2, you have people who were going hungry and did not own land to farm. They were less wealthy. So you had wealthy Jews coming back in and they had some things. That's verse 2. Then you had another group of people, and they owned land, but they had to mortgage their property in order to buy food. They had to mortgage the property in order to buy food. But they had the property, but remember in chapter 4, they've got a spear to fend off the enemy over here, and they have this, they're slapping mortar on the rock to build the wall over here. So they're not being able to build the wall. There's verse 4. There's people who owned land, but were so financially strapped that they were forced to borrow money in order to pay the king's taxes. So you have wealthy Jewish leaders who loaned kinsmen money to care for the problem. And if you weren't able to pay, then what you did is you took your kids and you enslaved them to pay your debt as collateral. This right there goes completely against the Bible, the scriptures, and the Jewish culture. Nehemiah comes in, and let me tell you something, he is irate over the people of God and the way that they're acting. Verse 6 basically tells us how he responds to this. Look at verse 6. I was very angry, and I heard their outcry, and these words, I took counsel with myself. Basically, he's like, dude, I got to walk away. (laughs) You ever had to walk away? You've been so upset, been so angry? Just, I got to go, I got to go cool down. I got to, I got to step off to the side. Because what I'm seeing right now is black or white. This is not the way that you operate among each other and with each other. So I'm going to go over here and I'm just going to gather myself. Then he comes back. The rest of verse 7 says, And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He, he went to the leaders. He went to the wealthy, those that are wealthy. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We... As far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold into the nations. But you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us. And here is a great lesson right now in confrontation. He goes right to the nobles. Now listen, what could happen here is that the wall could be stopped because they were the ones that would ensure the morale of the team. They were the ones to tell the team what to be doing. So he went to the nobles. He went to the leaders. And he said, hey, I need you to know that this is not right. Do you understand what a generous God did for us? He let us come back. He let us come in. He he is letting us build this wall. And what you're doing is you are enslaving our family so that we're not able to do what we're called to do. 
that is not right. So he keeps going. What do they say? He says, first, Nehemiah says, basically, you're putting us back in bondage. We were in slavery in Egypt. We were allowed to come back in. Now we're back in, and now you're putting us back in slavery. This is what they said. They were silent and could not find a word to say. <laughs> Crickets. Couldn't say anything. That's what's going on right there. He can't find anything to say. He laid the smack down of their greedy disposition and decisions, and it left them speechless. He continues in verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah knew the word of God in the Old Testament. And I want to encourage you with that. His anger is understood because it is righteous anger because he knew the word of God. It was filtered through God's word. It was not filtered through his sinful disobedience or his, his sinful nature. He was giving himself over to the work of the Lord, allowing God's spirit to work in him. And he's like, I know that this is not what the word of God would want us to do. And it's very clear that Jewish people could not loan money and other goods to Jewish people they were and not allowed to charge interest. As a matter of fact, you were not allowed to charge interest. And it was something called, was called the year of Jubilee, which every 50 years this took place. And if you owed money or were owed money, what would happen is all the debts were cleaned out. Why? Because we are the Jewish people. We are the people of God. We're the one to make much of God. And we're not going to be bound by these debts among our brothers. We're not going to do that. So every 50 years, everything was wiped clean. Everything was wiped clean. Why? So they could work together to do the mission and the work of God. We later find out, I did some studies, that the interest they were charging was 12%. A summary of that little section right now of Nehemiah's rebuke is, don't treat family like this. This is not the way the family of God is to treat the family of God. Verse 10. I love Nehemiah's humility in verse 10. It shows what he's doing. Nehemiah, verse, uh, me, Nehemiah number, um, verse 10 in, in chapter 5. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. So Nehemiah is enabling what's going on. It says verse he says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them that is very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their house, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And he comes and he recognizes this. And in verse 12, it comes up. Verse 12, it says this. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. This is how they respond. That we will restore these and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Listen, what he comes to him is he confronts them. And this is a beautiful, beautiful lesson in all of us. There is no excuse. There is ownership of the sin. Which is a beauty, beautiful thing that you and I need to see when we are confronted with sin. It's an ownership of it. You're right. We will do as you say. Nehemiah was a little, little wanted to hold them to the test. He wanted to make sure that their words, they were going to follow through with it. And so in the latter part of verse 12, it says this, And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. It's like, man, I'm, I hear you. But you know what? I want the priests to be here, and I want them to hear what you're going to say. And then he keeps going. He said, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, 
So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I shared an illustration a couple weeks ago. It's very similar to the one I'm going to share right now. Did have a, a guy looking for some money to get on a bus. He wanted a new job. He showed up one day. I Again, said the same prayer I prayed a couple weeks ago. Maybe some of you weren't here, but he asked for some money. I had $10. I gave it, put it in his hand, and I said, let me pray for you. And I said, God, let him use this money for good things. But if he uses it for anything that's not of you, I pray he'll be sick as a dog. Absolutely, God, do not let him use it on drugs, on alcohol, or anything, but for his job, for bus fare, for food, to get him where he needs to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the guy two weeks ago, he wanted me, he wanted to, he wanted me to reverse the prayer. He said, well, will you come on, man, will you reverse that? This guy just looked at me and said, I, I, I don't want it, you can have it. Tried to give me the money back. Tried to give the money back, <laughs> back. Nehemiah is just sitting there going, listen to me, listen to me. Listen, you need to understand who we're dealing with. This is the God of creation. Do you realize what he's allowing us to do, what he's allowing us to see, what he's allowing us to be a part of? Do you understand that? So I want you to make, I want, to, I want you to get your act together. So what is he, what does we see in Nehemiah's generosity? We come and we see what did Nehemiah did. So what's the problem? So the wealthy Jews are not going to do this anymore, but how are the Jews going to eat? How are they going to be able to take care, do the, do the mission of the work and all this kind of stuff? So verse 14 says, says how it's going to take place. 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, this is a place of authority, God had placed him there, God had placed him, sovereignly placed him, said this is, this is where you are in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. That's 12 years. Neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. Nehemiah is coming in to the day among the people of God and saying we're going to reverse the culture. We're not going to stand for this right now. He becomes, he becomes the governor. He reigns for 12 years. He says, we're not going to, he tells people, I'm not going to take what's allowed to me as the governor. What I'm going to do is just to trust God that he will provide. Please hear me, this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not what's going on in here. He said, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Nehemiah declares that his reign will not be based on selfishness and greed, that his reign will be based on a God who loves a God who brings us together and a God who wants us to serve him and follow him. He says that's what it's going to be on. So in verse 16, what does Nehemiah say that he's going to do? Remember, who is he right now? He is the governor for 12 years. He's responsible for getting these people together. What does he do in verse, verse 16? I also what it persevered in the work on this wall. Let us never ask people to do something we're, never, we're not willing to do ourselves. That's... That's right now great leadership among Nehemiah and a great lesson for us all. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 18, now what was prepared at my expense 
for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance, not from a box. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. And so here's what we're seeing right now. Nehemiah is saying, God, I'm going to trust God that he's going to provide. If we're asking them to do that, it's going to put too much of a burden on there. We've got the mission to be completed. Nehemiah comes in as a leader, and he is going to take care of his people because God is taking care of him. Just to let you know, 12 years, that's 4,380 oxen. That's 26,280 sheep. And that's several thousand birds over a 12-year period. Here's a quote for you, bigger to him than his prestige as governor, bigger to him than, his, than the privileges the governor would enjoy, was the good that would come to the people as the kingdom of God was advanced through the building of the walls. Nehemiah wanted God's name to be exalted and God's weak and vulnerable people to be protected. He trusted God he lo- because, and he loved God's people. Verse 19, what does he close it with? He closes this beautiful, beautiful section with this right here. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, and all that I have done for this people. Now, when you first read that, and I read it too, it's like, why is Nehemiah asking for him to have that authority? It seems very, it could seem very arrogant. And I looked at it, and I'm going, what is he looking for, and what are we striving to do in our life? Our striving to do in our life is that we are living for the audience of one, plain and simple. Nehemiah is not looking for the people to applaud him. He is looking for for the, the recommendation, commendation from God himself and him alone. That's what he's looking for. His desire his, his overwhelming desire was simply to please God. That's why he was doing what he was doing. He wants to serve God, and he wants to serve God's people because he believes that living in faith in what he cannot see will be more, more rewarding than living what he can see in this life. And his faith in God is so rich, he comes down to this and he says, I just, God, all I want to do is I want to please you. I just want to please you. That's an incredible, incredible motivation it's very convicting and it's very powerful and so what do we learn what do we learn here is we've got this conflict that arises on the inside not from the outside next week in chapter six it it, the the conflict comes from the outside um and we'll go back there but now we're sitting here and we're looking at the people of god the family of god so here's point number one is this the family of god must protect the family of god to not lose sight of the mission of God. The family of God must protect the family of God to not lose sight of the mission of God. As I have said before, the darts that Satan uses to attack from the outside are, are, should be expected as a believer. We should see those things coming. We're not exempt from those things. But when, the, when, when Satan decides to, to to distract us on the inside. We cannot let him get a foothold to do any such thing because it's like a growing cancer when it metastasizes. It is deadly, it is overwhelming, and it takes our breath away, if not our life. So the family of God must protect the family of God so that we do what? What we're here for, what we're left for. 
Jesus is coming back. He is going to take us with him. Um, but we're here for a reason, and that reason is to make much of him and to be on his mission and to keep serving. You've heard us say that over and over and over again. And so there was an outcry in Nehemiah chapter 5 and a warning for us as Northwest Community Church. Listen, let the people of God treat the people of God like you're supposed to so that you don't lose track from the mission of God. And I just was saying that there are several things that can distract us that we need to be careful of. There's several things that I wrote down that I feel like are really important for us to understand, really important for us to remember, because they can really, really distract us from doing what God would have us to do. And then the first thing here is money. I think it comes up in this text, and I think it's important for us as we live in this area to recognize that the Bible screams and teaches over and over again that the root of all evil is the love of money. Not money, but the love of money. And one of the things that we as the people of God could do is to really make sure that we have a healthy view of how we use our money to build God's kingdom and not let it be a distraction because of our abuse of money. The Bible teaches that we're to be like the Macedonians that give cheerfully and sacrificially. We must not allow the money to give us justification or our use of money or our ability to just write a check as justification to say that we're all in when we're not really involved in serving. Sometimes we must be really careful that we have a healthy view of what God has entrusted to us for his glory and our good. And so let's make sure as the family that we do have a very healthy view of this. Sometimes you can look at and say, oh, I've always been taught to give a tithe, which is 10%. Let me just let you know where I land on this issue. Maybe you disagree with this. I don't think it's something we should arm wrestle over. Um, but but I, I believe that it's sacrificial giving and cheerful. I don't believe there's a percentage because I do believe that 10% for some of us is not a sacrifice. But I do believe for this for the, the, the mother of, of a single mom, that when you say you must give 10%, I believe you, can be, you must be careful that that can, can lead into legalism. I think very clearly what we give is we give cheerfully and we give sacrificially. And between us and the Lord, we know what that looks like. And we continue to do that and do that with grace and motivation because we don't want as the family to have an unhealthy view of money, to allow us or cause that to distract us from why we're here and the mission that we've been invited to, to be a part of. And th the next thing I think that we must fight against with each other inside is pride and arrogance. We must be a people that constantly looks to Christ who is our example so that we do not let this pride that is in every single one of us hurt us, our body, and cause us to be distracted from God's mission. The greatest enemy of the mission of God is what we look at in the mirror every morning. Your relationship is most effective because we get in the way of ourselves a lot of times in our participation. And this pride and this arrogance has no place. And as the people of God, what we're trying to do is to protect the people of God and call out and confront and do that in a way that is beneficial and uplifting and challenging. So that we don't lose track, lose sight 
of why you're here and what we're here to do. I know another thing too is apathy. Sometimes we grow cold or we grow indifferent to things that happen or things that we've seen. And we come to the church and we just sit and we watch and we listen and we sing and we go home. But we become very apathetic to the things. And I think it's important that, it's important that as a family of God, we don't allow that laziness to tr- trickle in. And a family protects the family from that mindset or that shift. Another thing I think that we look at, and these are just some, some things that I wrote down that I feel like are really important as I was studying and praying this week. Another thing that we must be careful for because James says to be quick to listen and slow to speak, we must be really careful among the family of God about the role of gossip and how damaging that can be to the mission, to the cause of Christ, and to the hurt of people. We must be really careful of gossip. And no offense to those that are single, I think we must be also really, really careful about how the family helps the marriages because God has planted us in the middle of the burbs. And so there are a lot of marriages. And some of you don't like the marriage you have. And I would suggest and and submit to you, listen, God has defined this. He has equipped us. And I'm not asking you to stay in the marriage that you have. I'm asking you to stay in the marriage you can have because he's so good and he's so great. And the family of God protects the institution of marriage and helps us to live together in that way for the glory and the fame of his name. I think we we must do that. I think one of the other things that the family of God protects each other in is unrepentant sin. We're all going to sin. We are all going to mess up. We, we want a culture of repentance here at Northwest Community Church where a family encourages the family to own and not excuse. Where Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 are commonly practiced and we are confronted and we own where we have fallen. That's what a family does. It protects each other so we don't lose sight. Here is a couple of things. I'll give you three things I found in my study. Evidences. Your sin is dangerously strong and unmortified. Evidences your sin is dangerously strong and unmortified. Number one, you minimize the sin by looking for good in yourself. You suppress that. Number two, you preach the forgiveness of God to yourself while intending to carry on in your sin. And then number three, Your sin frequently seduces you and prevails. What we want to be is a healthy culture of repentance, of confession, not publicly, but where we are privately protecting each other in one or two people and groups and life groups and and accountability groups and, hey, take this, discipleship relationships. To whereby we can address this issue of sin in our life. Because that help that prevents the family from being the family that is focused and, and, and aligned to go about the mission of God. The last thing I wanted to share that kind of gets in our way or we need to protect against as a body is this. Is selfishness. Selfishness is the agenda that people exist Merely to meet my agenda, my wishes, my needs. Therefore, the value of anything, church, people of God, is determined is by what they do for me. 
One author said this, when the enemy fails and his attacks from the outside, he begins to attack from within and one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. I would even maybe say consumerism. And so the family of God must protect the family of God to not lose sight of the mission of God and let us be that place. Number two, the last thing I want to share with you is this. Nothing compares to the generosity of God. We must look at this and take a look at Nehemiah, that Nehemiah is an incredible, incredible example of generosity, but he is not the model for generosity. He's an example to generosity. He's an example of coming in and allowing all the things that he had, the sheep and the oxen and the the drink and the birds and all of that. He had all of that and he shared all of that and he allowed them to continue to do what they were placed here to do. And we have people in our lifetime like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and LeBron James and all of those people who give and we could classify them as generous. But the the example that we must follow and must always follow is Christ in Christ alone. He is the model. He is the definition. He is the one who has defined generosity. He is a better Nehemiah. It is him that we follow. In God, it is in God and it is through Christ alone that the definition of generosity is clearly defined. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, what? He gave. Ephesians 2, 8, for grace you have been saved. It's a gift. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. That wrecks me every single time I read that phrase. Knowing how generous he is, he, he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Romans eleven thirty five and 36. For who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and amen. Numbers 14, 8 says the Lord is pleased with us then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. And here's the generosity of God. Here's, here's the last one. First Timothy 6, 7 says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. How much greater is Christ's example to us. I've shared this maybe one time before, but I um, did not grow up in a home that was marked by generosity, but I married into a home that was truly marked by generosity. Phil and Kathy Qualls, my in-laws, um, lived out generosity greater than anyone I've ever seen in my life. I shared this story where... Um, one time, I, I, I looked at their giving record when I was at their house. Please forgive me. It was an envelope laying on the counter, and I just opened it. It was kind of opened. All right, I, all right, I. Hold on, unrepentant sin. Lord, please forgive me for that lie right in the middle of everybody. <laughs> Amen. 
Um, I opened it. I saw it. And I was like, wow. And one year, Kathy, Kathy came home and she had said, you're not going to believe it. We're getting audited. And she said, bring it on. I got every receipt, check, written by everybody that ever has been written out of, out of this home. Let me just give you an example. We're cleaning out their home right now, and I have all of these receipts. In the back of my pickup truck, I saw a check. I picked it up, and it was to J.C. Penney's for, in 1985. I'm not kidding. And so I want you to say that this is the reason that they were audited. Listen to me. They said, nobody makes this much money but gives this much money. That's why they were audited. My sweet wife's mother wrote a letter and said, mm, ooh, I wouldn't plan it on this one. But she, in the letter, she said, Dana, she said, anything ever happens to us? They traveled all over the world. They went to China and Israel and all these trips. And they said, Dana, if anything ever happens to us, we found this letter. Anything ever happens to us? She said, tell Kevin not to spend it all. And please, Dana, don't give it all away. Because the generosity just was a culture in that family that just permeated. And here's what we want to do, and we want to live like that. It's all for King Jesus. Every single thing that we have, every single thing that we will have, and every single thing that we do, yes, he wants to enjoy and have us to have, go, let us have fun, go to the beach, go on vacation. But at the end of the day, when we look at what he has done for us, let us never forget the model of generosity that he is to our lives. What I would like to do to close out our time together this morning is to just to pray over us, to pray over us a prayer based on Nehemiah chapter five. And then I would love for us to sing about this great God who paid it all for us. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead, the, the team is gonna come out and I would love for us to just just to finish our time up this morning by praying. This is what we want to do. Satan is going to come and cause a division outside and inside, and we must not let him have any foothold to anything so that it would distract us from call it why we're here and what we're doing. We must not let him do that. Let us learn to, from Nehemiah, but let us be generous like God. And let me pray for us right now. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for our church. Today I come to you and I ask you to hear our cries. We want to be a church unified for your glory. So I pray that you would hear that cry. We want to together to make your name great among people here in our city and our world. We also recognize that there are some things that prevent us from coming together and making much of you in our city and our world. And therefore, we repent of ways that we have treated others in our midst that may have done damage to many. We ask your forgiveness here. And Lord, I come to you right now and I wanna ask you to keep us from being apathetic in our walk with you. Because we know that can distract us as a family. I pray God that you will keep us from gossiping. That Lord, we would be dedicated to the truth. We'd be dedicated to building up confronting privately when necessary that you would free us and that you would convict us of saying too much 
We pray you will help us to use our finances to build your kingdom. Help us to have a plan to do this. Help us to listen to the outcries of our people in our city. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak in many cases. Help us to listen, hear, and address these issues. God, I pray that you'll keep us from pride and a selfish attitude, for we know that that does not glorify you. And finally, never let us forget your generosity, for it is you that is our model. We thank you for giving to us and supplying all that we need. May we come together as a family to protect each other and remember you in all things. For you alone are God. For you, there is no one like you. In Jesus' name.